What I wanted to talk about this morning is something pretty close to my heart, and it's basically why the local church. It's something I wrote about in my book. There's a chapter in here on what the local church is, what God's purposes for it were, and therefore, if it plays this role, what does it mean or what does it say to us in terms of faith? In other words, all the things of God, heaven, obedience, spiritual disciplines, the way we, we, we do our marriages or our family, all those things are, are at times things we take on faith. God says, do it this way, and we say, okay, because somehow we know that if we do it your way, even if we can't always see it, it's going to turn out better, that, that you actually have asked us to live in a certain way, and that when we do that by faith, you prove yourself faithful. And church, the local church, is something that lands squarely into that. It's something that God has created. It's his plan A to, I think, save a lost and dying world. Um, there's reasons for it. And oftentimes when we look at church and we wonder why or we look at it and we don't like something, we have to remind ourselves that this isn't always something that was created because it feels good in the moment or it always works, but it's something that God created that is good. And we often engage it on faith, on, on discipline, on obedience, knowing that if we do over time, It'll reap a harvest in our lives. So I wrote this into my, my book, this chapter. Ironically, it's the one chapter that's been the most heavily criticized. And um, it's interesting when people say dumb things locally, it's not that bad because you can go talk to them about it. When people, it really, it really drives me crazy when people say dumb things at a distance because you don't ever get the chance to tell them um, that they're saying dumb things. And I'm a lot more mature uh, than when my wife married me 15 years ago, but I still do, when I hear dumb things, want to tell people that they're being dumb. Like, that's just, that's a part of my character, my, my, my fruit of the Spirit. <clears throat> um, and, uh, but, but I think it's a, an, the reason people attack it is simply this. It's people that have an issue with the local church or pastors and they, the critiques kind of that I've read or heard are like, well, of course he said that. All megachurch pastors say that. And I'm like, I'm not a megachurch pastor. Like, it's Bend. It's 80,000. Um, but uh, it's kind of like somehow I get put in this box of being a cult leader. And so, of course, I'm saying these deceptive things about the local church because I'm trying to mind control people. And so that chapter should just be taken, kind of ripped out of the book um, and that just really cuts at the heart of me because this isn't just a chapter um, in a book of chapters about faith. This is also very close to my vocation and my calling. This is what I've given my life to. And I've, I've mentioned it before, but I'm a pastor not because, I, let me say it this way, I don't love the local church because I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor because I first loved the local church. Being a pastor is... is we can glorify it sometimes in some places, but I'll be honest with you, if you take the way even church people talk about pastors, let alone culture at large, it is the, the bottom of the totem pole. It's, it's oftentimes seen as manipulative or greasy or anti-intellectual um, or somehow you couldn't cut it in the real world or you don't understand the real world or you probably don't work really hard um, because nobody really knows what a pastor does. Um, what do you just do? Like, it must be like lawyers, you know? They bill while they're on the toilet. You know, pastors must just pray now and then and they, they count that as work or, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, nobody really knows. And I think that's a real shame because what we've done is in, in hollowing out, I think, 
what, what Scripture says we're supposed to respect. I mean, all through Scripture, there's verses on respecting what's happening and, and the, the honor that's worth those that teach. And I'm not asking for it for myself. Um, give it to Pete. Buy his lunch, take him and his wife out. But Scripture talks about honoring this. And, and there's something that happens when something that Scripture says to honor, we stop honoring. Then we begin to lose our sense of value or honor for the whole system itself. Um, and we lose our appreciation. Um, I could go on and on about um, friends that are pastors and tell you what a pastor's job really looks like. Um, never being able to go out in public without someone that has a difficulty or a challenge in their life pulling you out of a family situation or coming and talking to you. Um, the unsolicited calls or emails that you want to, to help with. They call it a care, caregiver syndrome. Doctors have it too. Nurses have it too. A lot of teachers have it too. But your, your heart and your vocation is to give. And no one ever is helping you put an end to that. And yet there are always more and more opportunities to give. And as the church is healthier and healthier or bigger and bigger, those opportunities only grow exponentially. And pretty soon you begin to look in the mirror or your wife looks at you or your kids look at you and you realize you're all gave out. Um, being a pastor isn't just this cush thing I do because I, I want to try and hide from the world and just have a cush job. And then I need everyone else to like support that business plan of mine. So now I'm going to tell you to love the local church. Like, that's not the game. That's not the game at all. And that's frankly why um, it frustrated me when I started like going, oh, there's an agenda here. Most people that aren't in the local church want to attack or beat up on the local church. And so this is something I've been talking about for 20 years now. Ever since I was a college pastor, I used to talk to Biola students, Biola students that thought Biola was their church. And I used to try and explain to them, no, this is what the local church means. And it's sacred and it's important. If you go lead someone to Christ out at Huntington Beach and they come to know the Lord and they say, I want to go to your church. And you say to them, well, you can't really um, unless you have $100,000 a year or, um, you know, you, you had a certain score on the SATs. Unless you have that, like, you can't really come to my church. Like, like church isn't meant to be exclusive, Right. Church is supposed to be open. So Biola is not your church. It also doesn't have little kids that are looking at older kids and saying there's role models here. And it doesn't have um, those wonderful old ladies that are prayer warriors able to see what's happening with these people that have the energy or, or are on fire to change the world and they're somehow connected through prayer with these people that need the prayer and the maturity and the wisdom. And not only that, but even the kid that thinks Biola is his church and he's telling the guy he lead to, led to the Lord, you know, on the, the beaches of, of Huntington Beach or whatever. Um, by the way, Huntington Beach was supposed to be called Pacific City. So Atlantic City, Pacific City. Um, but then Hunting, Huntington, if you've ever been to the Huntington Gardens or library, rich railroad tycoon, and you get to override like names like Pacific City. Um, things like that. But so someone comes to the Lord, Huntington Beach, um, and you're like, you can't come to my church. Um, the joke's really on you because guess what? <laughs> In another year or two, there's someone else that's not going to be able to go to your church. And that's you. Your value is going to begin to be um, when the Alumni Association finds you no matter where you move. 
and sends you visas like that are somehow tied to your school. Like I get a, a, an application for a Clemson University visa card uh, about once a semester. Um, that's not the local church. It's not the local church. So I'm going to talk about why the local church, and I titled this chapter in my book Mother Kirk because C.S. Lewis wrote his uh, autobiography um, two ways, one in a nonfiction way called Surprised by Joy, and then he wrote it in a different way. He wrote it in a, as an allegory called Pilgrim's Regress, and it was really his spin on uh, Pilgrim's Progress. It's called uh, The Pilgrim's Regress, and in it, you have this thing called Mother Kirk. Kirk, uh, K-I-R-K, is the Scottish word for church. So Lewis was just playing on language here and saying Mother Church, Mother Kirk. Um, so I'm going to read this from you, and then we'll kind of jump into it. So this is from The Pilgrim's Regress. Uh, and you've got the pilgrim that's kind of like in Pilgrim's Progress, that's, that's navigating life in this very symbolic, metaphorical way. And he says, I've come to give myself up. It is well, said Mother Kirk. You have come a long way round to reach this place, whither I would have carried you in a few moments, but it is very well. What must I do, said John? You must take off your rags, said she, as your friend has already done, and then you must dive into this water. Alas, he said, I've never learned to dive. There is nothing to learn, she said. The art of diving is not to do any, with anything new, but simply to cease doing something. You have only to let yourself go. It is only necessary, said virtue with a smile, to abandon all efforts. Virtue is the guide uh, in this story. To abandon all efforts at self-preservation. I think, said John, that if it is all one, I would rather just jump. It is not all one, said Mother Kirk. If you jump, you'll be trying to save yourself, and you may, and you may be hurt. As well, you would not go deep enough. You must dive so that you can go right down to the bottom of the pool, for you, not, uh, for you are not to come up again on this side, um, says Mother Kirk. Two prevailing misconceptions of the church uh, would be this. We're going to have some slides that come up. The first one is that the church is the invisible body of believers. The church is the invisible body of believers. Have you ever heard that? Church is the invisible body of believers. I'm a part of the church. Like, whatever that church thing is, I'm a Christian, I follow Christ. I'm part of the invisible body of believers. Um, this comes from uh, history again, right? So the Catholic Church was the dominant Christian way of structuring things from the time of Christ onward. I mean, it was... It was the one church, the Catholic church. So even our creeds will say the word Catholic. And the word Catholic simply meant universal. So we look at it now as like, oh, that's Catholic rather than Protestant. But when everybody was Catholic, it was simply saying us Christians. Like the Catholic church, that's the universal church of believers. It's somehow by going to mass or going to my local kind of Catholic church where there's a priest and other Christians, I'm identifying with or connecting myself to the universal church that's out there. So you had this kind of idea of the universal church, and it was helpful language, right? Because we know there are Christians on the other side of the world, and we might never go to church with them in, in the sense that we think of attending church. So how are we still brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, we're connected to them because they're part of the universal church, 
right? The one family, if you will. And so when it came to the Reformation, uh, and the Reformation's in the 1500s, really begins in 1517 when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses or complaints against the church door, castle church door in Wittenberg. Um, and that's kind of where you date the beginning of this kind of rift. And then the Protestant church got its name by those who were um, kind of protesting, um, the protesters, if you will. And, and so over time, the, this name Protestant took. And so you had the, the historic Catholic church and those that broke away from it. In Germany, they were called Lutherans. Uh, in uh, Switzerland, they were called Zwinglians or uh, Calvinists or whatnot. But it, it took on different forms and slowly congealed to all of you breakaway people are one category, these Protestants. And then the Catholic church, the Roman Catholic church is this other one. And so when you had Zwingli, who was the Swiss reformer in Zurich, kind of trying to work out his theology, how do we talk to Christians, to believers, about, about church, about the family of God, about all these things? But I don't want to use the word Catholic or universal, because that's, that's kind of the language of the other group that we've come out from. So what language are we going to use? And Zwingli brings in this, this word or this concept of invisible. The church is both visible and invisible. So visible now becomes like the local thing that you would attend or whatever, and invisible becomes the brothers and sisters we have in Christ that we don't necessarily see right now. They're out there. And so that's where that language came into the church. But what can happen over time is we take language and we kind of rip it out of context and we begin to just use it however we want. And so we kind of end up saying things like, I belong to the invisible body of believers. Well, which church do you go to? Well, it doesn't matter because I'm a part of the invisible church, the invisible body of believers. And that's what really matters is that I'm a part of this global kind of ethereal church. And isn't, after all, that what church really is? Uh, the answer is no, but, but that's how that argument goes. Does that make sense? Second misconception of church, I think one of the modern misconceptions is this, that the purpose of going to church is so that I can be taught and worship. Um, that doesn't sound that bad because those are two functions that happen through the local church. Um, but the, the real emphasis here is on the word I. And the purpose of going to church is so that I can have certain things or certain needs or certain desires met. It's a consumeristic kind of, a very subtle consumeristic kind of notion that creeps in that says, I'm a consumer and I have some consumer needs and so I'm going to go to a church to have those needs met. Um, when those needs are met, that, then I'm done with church. And if those needs aren't being met the way I like them, or if those needs could be met better somewhere else, so I am going to Walmart, and then I heard there's a Target, and Target maybe, you know, whatever. Like, oh, my needs, my consumer needs can be better met by Target. I'm going to switch over here to Target, because ultimately, isn't it about me having these consumer needs, uh, needs met. See how that kind of ends up working. And so you begin to kind of get into this whole idea where we're using the church as a means to the end of, of our own spirituality. Our own spirituality. Where I think the church is much more an end that we are designed to be or to have a part of. Meaning, Jesus is the head of the body of Christ. So the body of Christ, the church, 
Um, and we could get into the whole body of Christ thing, but even that language by Paul was used specifically of, now you, the Corinthians, you are the body of Christ. Here in this place, you are the body of Christ. And if I'm going to go to Philippi, you, you Philippians, you are the body of Christ with Christ as your head and, and different people um, kind of filling different roles of the body of Christ. But, but I'm going to come off of that just for a moment. But the idea is that it's an end. Jesus is the head of the body. It's his body. And we get to take part in the expression of that body and be attached or, or vitally, organically connected to that body. That's the end. Okay? It's not we go to the body of Christ because somehow the body of Christ is going to help serve our spirituality or our felt needs, and then we go on to some other part of life and serve a higher end like my own spirituality or my own relationship with God, which is really what it's all about or something like that, right? It's like, no, that's not, that's not really the end. You go to church not as a consumer, um, there's another word with a C, uh, contributor, but there's a better word. Um, it'll come to me. It's a, it's a, it's a, not a senior moment, but it's a foreshadowing <laughs> of a senior moment. Um, uh, so we can come as consumers um, or we can kind of have this very communal approach to church. And there's a reason that older generations don't switch churches as much as younger generations do. Have you ever noticed that? My grandparents didn't switch churches as much um, as my generation did. They went um, and they stayed, and that's what they did. And if you were to say, but do you like the style, they'd kind of be like, well, no. (laughs) We don't think, you know, this, that, the other. Well, is the preacher good? Well, he means well, you know, like... Um, would, you ever le- uh, would you ever leave the church? No, over my dead body. Um, and not only that, but part of our estate is going to this church when we die. Radically committed to it. Why? Because they weren't coming saying that ultimately it's about my desires. For them, church was a commitment. It was, it was duty. And in that duty, there's a lot of wonderful, beautiful things that come out of it, right? That they get to, to have that sense of ownership and those relationships and that 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 rich history that only comes when you stay in one place for a while. Um, but it wasn't about the consumer things. It was, it was kind of this discipline, this spiritual discipline of saying you get involved and you put down roots and you become a part of a spiritual community. So one of the prevailing misconceptions is that it's really about I. It's really about I. One of the biggest problems in American culture is that we say it's really about I. I think if we're going to define the church, um, we're going to say this. That the church is both visible and invisible. Um, the church is both visible and invisible. And that it, it has to always be both. And when we lose sight of the visible part and we begin to think of just ourselves, we become very, very much like the Gnostics. And here's what Michael Scott Horton had to say about Gnosticism. By the way, Gnosticism was what grew out of kind of a Greek merging of philosophy with Christian religion. So you're taking about 100, 150 years after Jesus, you're bringing this kind of Greek philosophy into the church, and it's really kind of about the inner spirit of a person, the flesh uh, or material things are bad or evil, and it's really this paths of enlightenment, much like Zen Buddhism would be, okay? 
That's, that's very much what's going on with Gnosticism. And Gnosticism, according to Gnosticism, the self alone meditating on heavenly things is just as sacred as the public worship of God through word and sacrament. Why should one have to go to church when one can just as easily worship him in private experience and meditation? We, we see this thinking crop up a lot of times. I remember I used to hear, uh, hear the phrase, anyone ever heard the phrase bedside Baptist? I mean, we create jokes to mask um, things we're really thinking. You know, when we have a thought that we're like, eh, this is actually kind of how I'm really feeling, we usually use humor to kind of make it socially acceptable to kind of put out there. Where were you this morning? Like, oh, you know me, I'm a bedside Baptist. Ha <laughs> ha. Meaning I roll over, look at my Bible, think, I'm glad I have it on, you know, my nightstand. Someday I'll read it. Um, let's go see what football game is on. Uh, that's that's kind of how we treat it, is that somehow it's... It's really just about me being spiritual. That's why a lot of Christians, I don't have, by the way, and you might disagree, I don't have any problem with yoga. A lot of Christians do, a lot of churches do, a lot of pastors do. Um, You can go stretch away. Um, it's It's not my hot button, right? When you begin, the interesting thing is when people leave church for yoga, you have no idea how many people I know that, that didn't find what they were looking for in church and don't really go to church anymore, but they're very faithful to yoga. Do you see what's really interesting about that? I think they had come to look for in church what, frankly, might be better accomplished in yoga, which is me, myself, and I really getting into my kind of spirituality and finding a lot of um, peace, not the kind that comes from Christ, but the kind that, that's registered by a lower pulse or better breathing rhythms or looser muscles and being able to take really cool Instagram pictures like where you're all <laughs> twisted up. Um, but do you see what I'm saying? Like if we slowly switch out what the whole thing's about, pretty soon there's other things that might be able to accomplish that better for us than church. Church was never about just simply you and God and and deep spiritual feelings. It's so much deeper and richer and more sacred than that. Um, Where am I getting this? Let me just give you a couple more bits. Uh, In the New Testament, the Greek word ekklesia, which means gathering or assembly, uh, appears 114 times. So all of the usages of this Greek word, 114 times, 90 of them refer to a local church or assembly, a specific one, a specific one in a specific place. In other words, the church at Philippi, uh, the church at Ephesus, the Jerusalem church, not the invisible church, but a specific church. If we keep going... Um, this is from the dictionary of Paul and his letters, but these are some more things about this idea, ecclesia, this word that, that we translate as church. Uh, it comes from the old Greek in which it meant an assembly which was regarded as existing only when it actually assembled. The group that came to stone Paul, according to the New Testament, was a church, an ecclesia. Paul wasn't almost stoned by an invisible assembly of stoners. 
Paul was almost stoned by an actual group of people that came together at a specific place in a specific time for a specific function. That word ecclesia is, is not something that, get, that, that translates into this invisible idea. It's about being together, present together. Uh, if we continue, ecclesia, uh, it never renders the Hebrew word. Um, so, so this is talking about the Septuagint. So when we are looking at the Greek version of the Hebrew scriptures, you get a really interesting thing because which, which Greek words did they use to translate Hebrew words, right? So you can kind of pinpoint how people thought of things. And they never used that word to render the Hebrew word eda, which simply meant people as a national unit or whole, or whole. The word ecclesia or church wasn't, wasn't meant to apply to the invisible or even the universal, if you will. It was meant to apply to the thing that happens or the thing that we are when we come together to celebrate Christ on, Lord, on the Lord's Day, that that's a church. The Reformation had marks of a local church. This is what I try to teach those Bible students. I'm like, you can't just call anything a church. Like, you know, it, it's, it's supposed to be an open system, system, not a closed system. In other words, like, if people can't be a part of your church, it's not a church, right? Um, it's supposed to have vertical as well as horizontal diversity. So in other words, yes, your, your college, Biola, has diversity. You have engineering students and you have art students and you have Bible students and then you have, you know what I mean? Like, yes, there's diversity horizontally, but there's no age diversity vertically. Like I was talking about, the children that are watching the example. Our children need better examples than all the former Disney stars. Please. I'm serious. Where are they going to find those? examples. I would much rather my kids not, not get into whoever the latest Miley Cyrus is when she's still young and innocent, but I'd much rather my kids go to youth group or come here, look to Linda or Jarrell or to the, the wives of other families or the kids in other families and say, this is what it means to be a Christian, a part of a covenant community and to follow Christ. I want that. That's vertical diversity. That's a part of a church too. There's marks of a church. So the Reformation marks of a church were um, the scriptures rightly taught, the scriptures rightly taught, uh, the sacraments, that the sacrament of baptism, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, that those things are things, sacred things that, that are to happen as part of a local church. And then the third thing was church discipline. Something we don't talk about often, but that idea that there's some sort of of recognized shepherding um, force for good. That people that have already proven themselves in other towns or the apostles themselves or whatever lay hands on and raise up leaders who are gonna be able to shepherd the people that are gonna form that church in such a way that the flock doesn't get abused. And, and part of how that is known is that that shepherding has taken place both in the nurturing and the correction or, or admonition of both doctrine and practice, orthodoxy or orthopraxy. And so it's an incredibly important thing. In the church plant movement, it was an incredibly important thing for me to have a group of elders lay hands on me and to say, we recognize that this is of God and we are sending you. So I waited nine years from the time God called me to plant a church before I planted because I was like, this, this is ha it has to happen. Uh, 
kind of in the right way. It's not just, I don't like the senior pastor I'm working under. Um, I'm frustrated because they won't give me whatever. I'm just gonna, I'm gonna leave and go start my own thing. And a lot of churches do get started that way. Like, I'm, I didn't want to, to do that. It, it was important to me that it was, in, in many respects, a leg- legitimate kind of organizing of, of what is meant to be this sacred thing called the local church, the ecclesia. Um, it's incredibly important. So this is what the word church means, just from Scripture. If I were to kind of go... Uh, actually, we got just a couple more, so I'll give you a couple more. So Josephus, uh, who is the uh, Jewish writer that wrote about New Testament times, he used the word ecclesia 48 times, always referring to an official gathering. Again, not an invisible one. My late professor, uh, Robert Sosi, Bob Sosi, recently passed away. I had him when he was in his 80s. Um, he was kind of the venerable old scholar at Talbot. He wrote the book on church, literally. It was called The Church in God's program. Um, This is some things he says in it. Um, On page 17, he says, as for membership in an invisible church without fellowship with any local assembly, this concept is never contemplated in the New Testament. The universal church was the universal fellowship of believers who met visibly in local assemblies. He goes on uh, the following page to say, each individual assembly is the church in that place. Page 25, he says, the local assembly is the one body of Christ particularized in a certain locality. I find this fascinating because throughout history in the church, even when you had so-called cultural Christians, you're familiar with that phrase. Cultural Christians means, I say I'm a Christian, but you wouldn't know it. You know what I'm talking about? Like, the interesting thing is, historically, cultural Christians still attended Mass. They still went to church. They still showed up at these kind of meetings because that was what you did if you were a Christian. It's not until consumerism really explodes in America from kind of the the, the 60s and 70s onward that you'll have cultural Christians that now say, in my cultural Christianity, I find no reason to, to go on a Sunday morning to Mass or to the local church or to whatever it is that maybe I grew up with or Grandma took me to or that my parents did. That, that somehow in our consumer kind of um, like upbringing now in American culture, we don't have any sense of that, that kind of historic duty or obligation that, yeah, the church, you're just not going to get away from that. You got to go on Easter and Christmas. You got to go sit with grandma. You got to go take mass. You got to go. Like we've lost all sense of you've got to. And we've baptized this inclination that um, we owe it nothing. We owe it nothing. We need nothing really from it because we can get our spirituality somewhere else. And don't try and tell me I owe it something because I owe no one anything. That's what it means to be in America these days. So if you begin to push on me and say, as someone calling themselves a Christian, um, that, that you owe the church something, in other words, you belong to it, that, that, that that's something you, you're supposed to kind of be a part of, when you begin to say that, pretty soon, here's the response. You're only saying that because what? You're only saying that because 
you're a pastor. And my coming somehow benefits you. You're only saying that to me because it's self-serving. I think the greatest uh, disappointment, the greatest frustration that I've had in being a pastor, I think, in the last five or six years is simply this. Historically, when people want to discuss what God intends for something, they would come to the pastor or the teacher, say, Pastor, what is God's teaching on this? Pastor, what is God's plan for this? Pastor, what does the Bible say about this? So, so my profession, one of the, the joys or the benefits was that people would come and say, let's talk about what God has for this thing, right? But now that the greatest critique on church is we don't need it, but there's a bunch of guys running around trying to tell us that we do, the one thing that, that I think this generation needs to hear, which is that the local church really matters. It's God's plan A. There is no plan B. The church is going to arrive in heaven, by the way. Marriage, who we're married to, ends when we go into heaven. Jesus said himself, there won't be giving and taking of marriage in heaven. The institution of marriage does not make it to heaven, except for one marriage. Do you know which marriage that is? The church as the bride of Christ. And so there's all sorts of language about the church, that assembly making it all the way into heaven and being the institution that goes all the way through, right? So when people are saying you're just doing this self-serving, the one thing this generation needs to get teaching on is the one thing no one will allow me to talk to them about. And for someone who is a, values teaching, like that, that drives me crazy. I've been, I've been stripped of my voice with regard to the importance of the local church simply by virtue of I'm someone who loves the local church. Therefore, I'm a suspect or I've got a dog in the fight or something else. You see how that logic is working? Um, and it's hurtful. Um, and it's frustrating to be handcuffed on something that's so important. Um, so what does that mean? When we hear the statistics that all these people, 80% or whatever it might be of this generation are leaving kind of church affiliation. I, I think everyone's heard those statistics now, right? Um, that, that church attendance in America is on the decline. I think you'd have to be on the, the dark side of the moon um, to not hear that, just even in census data. But I think when we hear that as Christians, the natural assumption is, oh, that's not a good stat, right? Has anyone ever heard that stat and thought, well, that's neutral or yeah, it might be a good thing. Like, isn't the assumption somehow that, the, that this outflow is somehow a bad thing? Right? I, I don't know that we ever talk about the, the implied logic of the opposite. If outflow is a bad thing, then what would be the inflow? Good thing. So there's something really strange that we'll see it as a bad thing if it doesn't happen, but then we won't ever talk about it's a good thing when people are going to church. Like, well, let's not go that far. But it's implied in our logic. See how that works? It's implied in our logic. What does it mean then that the church is a good thing? Here's three reasons that the church is a good thing. If you're a note taker. Uh, one reason the church is a good thing is it keeps God's purposes on your mind. It's the sermon that you don't know that will change your life that really changes you. It's the habit that creates the opportunity. 
It's the friendships you didn't know you would build when you were helping with set up or tear down or kids ministry. It's the telling of the story to children that makes you realize for the first time like, wow, these stories that I heard as kids actually speak to me or matter something in my faith walk. In other words, somehow by putting church at the center of our schedule, it forces a certain, over time, a certain prioritization of spiritual things, which is really important. This shows up most uh, clearly to me when someone says to me, yeah, I've stopped going to church. I just don't think I need it anymore. It's, it, it immediately jumps into my mind, oh no, a year or two from now, this is, this is really gonna be a bad situation. Because what I'm, what I'm seeing is, is that if, if you stop coming at all, and that influence of that community or that teaching or those ideas or, or putting God first in your schedule, if that takes a back seat, over time, you've kind of lost your anchor and you're gonna drift. That's my assumption. Um, and I, I've seen it borne out time and again, and maybe you have too. The second thing is it prioritizes spiritual community. It prioritizes spiritual community. So it keeps God's purposes on your mind. Second thing is it prioritizes spiritual community as opposed to other forms of community. Um, we're shaped by our peer group. We're, we're herd creatures. We need to be affirmed when we're weak by spiritual affirmation. When we're strong, we need to be, be able to provide encouragement to other people. We're supposed to love, I mean, all of the one another passages of the New Testament. These things only happen when our lives are intersecting. They only happen when our lives are intersecting. Why does nobody show up at the hospital when you get sick from the church or at your doorstep when all of a sudden divorce is a, a, a real thing that might happen? Because no one in the church knows because you haven't been interacting with the church. Um, at least those are some of the possible reasons. Third thing here, why the church is valuable, is it makes you responsible. It makes you responsible. If you come to church long enough, you, you can't stay a consumer or you ought not stay a consumer. Eugene Cho, a friend of mine once said, uh, don't just be an attender, be a host. Be a host. You are the, the body of Christ. You are a part of it. One of the, the parts of this body is what you represent when you're here. And, and you belong here, and this is your church, and this is your body. And so don't just be someone that comes and attends. Sit here as someone who's a host and is hospitable to other people that might come or to others that, that might have questions. But it's a sense of ownership that comes in a commitment to say, local church matters, and I'm committing to a specific local church. You don't have to commit to Antioch. There's plenty of good churches in this town. I'll tell you lots of them. Come find me. I'll also tell you ones not to go to. Um, here's the deal. Um, people that leave the local church, there's reasons to leave the local church. Kip gave me a new draw toy. I don't know if it'll work. Um, but there's reasons to leave the local church. Bad doctrine. You're not able to use your gifts. You've tried, you've tried, you've tried, you've tried. You're not able to use your gifts. That's a good reason to leave a local church. But you've got local churches in this community, some bigger, some smaller, whatever it might be. Um, and you come and you're attending a local church. Um, there are reasons to leave a local church. Uh, Mike Saba, who's a good friend of mine, came to the elders two years ago and says, hey, been a faithful member here. Uh, I have a friend who does another church in town, Mission Church, 
and they need someone to teach a new believers class and they don't have anyone that can teach kind of a new Christian class. And I really feel like it would be a good use of my gifts if I were able to go there and fill that need for them. Would you guys send me there to do that, uh, to do that task? And we were like, absolutely, absolutely. We sent him to that church. Uh, I've had, I counted up this week, I've had four people come to me in nine years and say, we're leaving Antioch. Four people. They all had good reasons. They all had biblical reasons. Um, there's been a lot of people, even friends that I became very close with, that have left Antioch. And we would have happy hours and they just wouldn't even tell me. I'd, I'd like hear about it secondhand. So I've had four people that have talked to me. They all had good reasons. I'm surmising something about a lot of the other people that, that have left. Do you want to know what I'm surmising? They didn't have good reasons. And when you don't have something that's a good reason to, to look someone in the eye and say, hey, look, I'm leaving, here's why, what do you tend to do? You tend to just avoid it. Well, they'll figure it out soon enough when we're not there, you know? Um, and, and so there's something really interesting about the way we leave when we're doing it for consumeristic reasons. Is we, we don't do it in any kind of a healthy way that, that maintains relationship. The, the, the interesting thing about the people that have come and talked to me, it's not an awkward conversation when we run in, into each other in, in the grocery store. We're still really good friends. We're still a part of the, the universal church together, brothers and sisters in Christ. But the consumeristic thing creates a real weird deal. The other thing is this, when you come to church and you're involved and you get deeper and deeper involved, Kids are looking up to you. You're in a small group where you've made friends. Um, people are used to you working, uh, telling stories, helping on service teams, whatever it might be. And then when you leave, what's the other thing that happens? There's a hole. When you become a part of a, church, a body and you begin to be interconnected and interdependent like you're woven into fabric, if you will. A body's a great analogy. It gives and it takes. And when you're a part of that and you then now go somewhere else, you're ripping a part of the body out and, and you're, you're missing that somehow you've just cheapened church as a whole or that specific local church. It confuses people. Our kids have asked us before, why, why did so-and-so stop coming to church? We don't understand. Um, it, it creates problems in the health or the healthy functioning of a local church. Again, I'm not saying it's a cult where you gotta stay and you never can leave. There's biblical reasons for leaving a church. God can call you somewhere else, right? I, I've never said to somebody, no, you have to stay. Never said that. But what I'm saying is when we understand the sacredness of the local church and we become responsible, we take it a little bit more serious. I'm a shepherd. I'm also a father of four daughters. I'm beginning to take shepherding things very seriously. I don't think I'll ever, when a guy shows up at the door to take one of my daughters out, I don't think I'll ever be jumping up and down, ooh, 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 someone likes my daughter. <laughs> That's not what's going to be going through my head. What's going to be going through my head is, what are your intentions? What are your intentions? Like, I, I, I don't care that you're here. I care more about the health of what's going to come because you're here. When we started Antioch, we were younger. 
Kip was still a baby. Um, <laughs> but we used to get really excited when people showed up. You know, I remember like conversations in the hallway, like there's cars in the parking lot. Like, <laughs> oh my gosh, you know, a family of five just walked in. Like, like this is unbelievable. But so, you know, you're a church planter. It's a little bit different. You're jumping up and down. You're excited that just people are just going to come. I don't look at it that way anymore. I don't look at it that way. I, I look at it like I don't just get excited because someone's here. What are your intentions in being here? Or, or are you willing to have your intentions refined? Are you willing to treat this thing, this sacred local community, are you willing to treat it in a sacred way? The people that you're going to join small groups with, they matter to me. The people you're going to be involved in kids ministry with, those people matter to me. My kids that I'm going to begin to introduce you to, my kids matter to me. And if you treat this church lightly, it's a confusing thing for them or potentially a very hurtful thing to them. What are your intentions in being here? When we first started the church with like a group of 30, we made everybody pray. And some of you that are here remember this. But the, but the whole thing was you're not allowed to come unless God tells you to come. You're not allowed to come unless God tells you to come, the first 30 people. Because someday it's going to get difficult and the answer to the question, why am I here again, can't be, oh yeah, that's right. Ken's a pastor and he needs a church so that he can, you know, have coffee with people during the week. Like, it can't be that. I just broke Kip's, no, never mind. Um, <laughs> the answer can't be like, I don't have an answer. When the hard times come about a local church, the answer has to be, oh, that's right. Like, God has led us here. And we've had great times here. And we've had struggles here. And we've wrestled with our faith here. And somehow in all of that wrestling, our understanding of commitment and covenant has deepened. That's why we're here. And so as long as God doesn't call us away or there's not some like doctrinal problem or whatever, then we're going to stay here. And by the way, if you ever think there's a doctrinal problem, please come and talk to me. Please come and talk to me right away. Because... We work really hard not to always follow whatever the latest cultural kind of evangelical or contemporary doctrine is, because oftentimes that doesn't even come from Scripture. We work really hard to kind of sink into Scripture and go, what does the New Testament say about this or that or the other thing? Please come find out why we're doing what we're doing. And you know what? I could be wrong or we could be wrong as leadership, and we would need your voice a lot of times people come to me and they're like, I left because this was making me miserable. And I'm like, man, it was? Did you ever try and fix it? What do you mean? Well, it sounds like you really understood it well, that you, you laid awake in bed thinking about it, stressing about it. You came up with all sorts of ideas on how it could be better, and now you're telling me you're leaving? Like, why didn't you try and fix it? Like, this is your church. You, you have the ability to speak into things. Uh, Rick Warren, I, I heard this from him. I'll give him credit, but I loved what he, what he said. He says, your misery is your ministry. If you don't care about something to where it, it's never going to bother you and you're never going to lose sleep over it, you probably aren't going to be passionate enough to do that as your ministry, or you shouldn't be, at least. If you care about something enough that you think about it and wrestle with it and come up with ideas and lay awake at night like losing sleep over it, that's where you should be involved in ministry. That's where your passions are. So your misery should be your ministry. 
When you're committed to this church, your misery is going to tip you off as to what your ministry should be. If you're coming to this church in a consumer way, then all of a sudden it flips. Your misery becomes a reason to go somewhere else where you're going to be less miserable or you get to start over or where they're going to cater to felt needs better. So it's, it's our starting point that really matters. We're going to run out of time shortly, so I want to switch to one last thing um, because I think it's important from a biblical sense. I usually get told... Um, this, where two or three are gathered together, there Jesus is in their midst. It's what Jesus said in the Gospels, and therefore, therefore, um, that's where church is, where two or three are gathered together. In other words, if two or three of us are going to go to the mountain and ski, we're, we're having church on the mountain. You know, as long as we have two or three of us kayaking on Sunday morning, yeah, we're having church there. Like, that's a be- that's beautiful language. Um, frankly, Jesus is with me when I'm by myself. I don't need another one of you for the Holy Spirit to be with me, right? But, but the big issue is this is one of those pseudo-pop Christian things that has traveled really far, and it's not biblical. And so we need to look at it really quick. So I put some verses on the board. This phrase that Jesus says um, in Matthew 18, verse 16, is in the famous church discipline passage. Ever heard of church discipline? There's one passage that Jesus comes up with um, and he says, hey, if something's wrong, take it to them. If they don't listen to it, go get someone else. Take it to them. If they still don't listen, then by the, the testimony or two or three, it'll be established. This is how you're going to keep order in the church. You need, to, you need to have kind of, you know, purity that way. And you know what? Look, don't be afraid because where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am also. So Jesus says this in uh, verse 1816. Um, But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This harkens back to the law in the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19.15. One witness is not enough to convict anyone uh, accused of a crime or offense that they may have committed. A matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. This is basically before they had DNA and fingerprints and forensics and... Um, lie detector tests and all of those kinds of things. And what, what the Old Testament was saying is, look, you can't just go accuse somebody and, and then they're going to be found guilty of this. That's not okay. It has to be settled with witnesses there. There has to be two or three that can establish what was wrong before someone's convicted. Jesus is borrowing this and saying, look, with numbers, with two or three of you, with people really caring about this, bringing it out into the open, just it's not a petty argument between two people. With that, it's gonna be established. And you can do this kind of thing. You can keep health in the church by, by going through this process of discipline. And you know what? I'm gonna encourage you. I'll be with you if you do that. Second Corinthians 13, one, Paul, this will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. 1 Timothy 5.19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. And then Hebrews, anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. This idea of where two or three are gathered together, there is the church, is, is completely bad doctrine and false theology. That's not what's being said by Jesus. We've kind of appropriated this to kind of suit our needs. Like church is gonna be, guess what? Whatever I want it to be. As long as my wife and good friend are with me, then, then church is gonna be, in some sense, whatever we make of it. And, and Biola, this was rampant 
hey, look, there's two or three of us in our dorm that are, that are reading uh, Anne Lamont. You know, that's church. You know, like, hey, there's two or three of us that are going to go to um, Germany, but don't worry, like, we're a church. You know, it, it, it's this kind of complete misunderstanding of, of doctrine. And I think it's a shame because in an age when so many people are losing sight of why church is valuable, it's kind of going that way. Um, you know, people prayed to join Antioch at the beginning of this thing. And I think I would just simply say to all of us here, and you might be new and it might take some time and that's fine, but I, I think I would say be here because God's called you to be here. Be here because God's called you to be here. Um, and if God's called you to be here, why has he called you to be here? Probably more than just to consume. Um, the beautiful picture of church that we see in the New Testament where everybody had stuff and it was all in common and they were flourishing and it was this wonderful picture. Like that language was follow, uh, following the language of rich people that had lands were selling those lands, bringing the money to the disciples and money was going different places and that community was flourishing. The community flourishing was because people valued it enough to invest into it. If there's no resources or energy, people aren't serving, people aren't giving, it, it's a lot like a, can, a, a canoe without an oar. Like it has all this potential, but it just can't go anywhere. And this week, I began to just really lay awake in bed and say, God, what would it look like? Not everyone in this church has discretionary income or even investment income, but there are people that do. What would it look like for someone in Bend, Oregon to care enough about the local church that they would sell a piece of property and bring the money to Antioch. How much does a piece of property go for in Bend? It's a rhetorical question. But the people that were selling it in Jerusalem, these were hereditary lands, passed down from generation to generation, but they had excess, or certainly investment lands. What would it look like for people in Bend, Oregon to say, I know a good investment when I see it, and I've got these different things going, but you know what? there's an opportunity to take one of those things and turn it into spiritual momentum that a community would flourish. I've had people come to me before and say, look, if Antioch ever builds a building, I've got 50K. If Antioch ever builds a building, I've got 100K. Just let me know. And at this week, I've begun to get really like, why do we have to, to have a building campaign for people to want to invest in the church? The church, the local church is the community that flourishes when we collectively invest into it. The building is completely a secondary or tertiary thing. It is not the church. The early church in Rome used to meet in the crypts. I had pictures, I'm not gonna show you because we're running out of time, but they used to meet in the crypts under Rome. They're still there, by the way, with bones stacked up because they didn't bury people the way we did. And like underground torchlight bones and they kind of went into these big rooms and they'd go underneath there to these kind of big cavern rooms in the crypts and they'd hold church there. And people come to me and they talk about their kid cries when they drop them off at kids ministry. Bones. <laughs> by torchlight. You know what I'm saying? Like nothing ever promised us that our kids wouldn't, wouldn't, I mean, nightmares, right? But buildings are a completely side thing. And there was a time and a place for that in America. And, and God bless it. I, I, I don't need to, I don't want to, don't need to disparage that. But why is our, our best 
product for the church, our best investment, our best energy, our best resources for some kind of thing that we're going to build, missing completely the idea that the church, for a lot of its history, was without buildings, and that it's really the health of the community that we get to invest into, the city that we get to do, the programs that we get to do, the education that we get to do, and that all of these things can flourish and be nurtured as we use our different gifts. And some people have a gift of resource or money. Others have the gift of service. Some of the people with money might want to hire you to do their service for them. That's okay. Um, It's a joke. Um, But the idea here is, as we launch into the fall, just value the local church. I don't care which local church, but find one that you value or that you feel God's calling you to. Put down your roots, go deep, but when you go deep and you begin to get that influence that that church is allowing you to have, steward that influence well, because what you do isn't just about you. It's about the local church, the bride of Christ, which matters. Father, this is your church. You know I'm praying for resources. You know I'm praying for volunteers. You know I'm praying for a lot of things, but all those things might be missing the whole point. Um, May you be vitally involved here, and may we be healthy as a result, whether we're 50 people or 500. Make that my chief desire. Please refine my heart. Make it the chief desire of the people that are here, that we would know you and know the health of, of the local church that can only come about through the power of your Holy Spirit. We pray that in Christ's name.